Kiora, Saobona, Namaste, and hello everyone, and welcome. Thanks so much for tuning in. You're listening to Medicine in the Mirror with Dr. K, a South African-born Indian who made beautiful New Zealand home. Outer beauty is a mere reflection of inner health. Are you ready to join me on the journey to becoming more healthy and so too more beautiful? Then let's get started. Kiora, and welcome to Season 2. My apologies that Season 1 was much shorter than I expected, but I'm back with Season 2 and lots of exciting and interesting episodes coming up. COVID-19 is ruling our world at present, and there isn't a single person that hasn't been affected by it. Simply think about the last 24 hours, you'd have either heard COVID mentioned or said the word yourself at least once. The pandemic has led to some hard times for all of us. Lockdowns, closed borders, families being separated, and lots of division over immunization and mask wearing. Many have lost loved ones, and the health systems throughout the world have been tied up managing it and trying to keep it out. It certainly has been devastating for humanity and continues to wreak havoc in my life both professionally and personally. Sadly, I've lost five of my colleagues from med school back in South Africa to COVID, as well as a few friends throughout the world. This has made me even more passionate about trying to reduce its effects in our community here. Initially, when I was mapping out my podcast, I was going to discuss COVID vaccination and cosmetic injectables, as it was quite topical in aesthetics because of the potential swelling with dermal fillers. But life just got a bit too crazy to fit everything in, so I decided to practice what I preached, self-care, and put my podcast on hold until this year. Now that I've got a bit more time and I'm rearing to go, I've kind of changed tack a bit and thought I'd discuss a bit more on living in a COVID world and how to minimize your risk. I'm going to discuss the little things that you can do to try to reduce your risk, as well as touch on the mask use again, and I'm going to add a little bit at the end about cosmetic injectables and immunization. We Kiwis have enjoyed quite a lot more freedom than most throughout the world. Since the pandemic, our two-year elimination strategy has kept most of us relatively spared, with only 53 deaths, which is just awesome. The coronavirus that was first isolated in Wuhan and caused severe death and disease, has since mutated. Yes, South Africa, my country of birth, was accused of causing the mutation Omicron. But, in my opinion, the world should be thanking Africa now, as this variant is still causing mischief, but it's much less mortality. It's Africa's gift to the world. Until now, it's more than likely than not that you've never met anyone who's had COVID-19. That's all about to change. Omicron is here and we've already recorded our highest daily cases since the pandemic. It was inevitable. For anyone with Fano anywhere else in the world, it probably already has. It's our turn to accept that sooner or later, we are all likely to be infected with the Omicron variant. Truthfully, as much as I'm scared, we know a whole lot more and so much better prepared than we were in March 2020 at the beginning of this pandemic. Omicron is said to cause less severe disease than Delta but is much more contagious. But remember, it can still kill, especially in the unvaccinated and vulnerable. As seen in the US, where only 64% of the population has been vaccinated, and the number of deaths per day are still just under 300, which is in fact higher than the death due to Delta. Although there are a high number of Omicron cases in Europe and other areas where high vaccination rates are, there hasn't been a massive surge in death rates with deaths plateauing or falling even while infection rates stay high. Going from zero community cases in New Zealand to living with COVID is a massive shift for us, especially for us to get our head around the idea of potentially millions of infections. 
There's much talk about COVID becoming endemic, but to me, it's not the true definition of endemic, but rather when our society deems the risks acceptable, which is about where we're sitting at now. The good news is that most of us are likely to experience an uncomfortable but otherwise survivable illness as over 94% are vaccinated, boosted, and not immunocompromised. Omicron can still cause hospitalizations and deaths, and arguably our country could still face catastrophic consequences with the collapse of the health system. It's still going to cause morbidity and mortality, but hopefully in a more predictable way. The unvaccinated and vulnerable will certainly be at higher risk as seen by our neighbors across the ditch. New Zealand is what we call immunologically naive, as our previous strategy was simply to eliminate COVID completely. But this has since changed. Omicron arrived and flipped everything we thought we knew about COVID and how to act up in the air. Omicron is highly contagious, and the main form of transmission is by aerosol spread, which simply means it spreads by the tiny particles that we emit when we simply talk or breathe. Aerosol spread is like the fine mist when you get to spray your perfume, so you don't have to even cough or sneeze, which was what we call droplet spread in the previous variants. And that's what resulted in the two-meter social distancing rule, because the large droplets fall to the ground within two meters. But with aerosol spread, the risk is simply much higher, even if we just talk louder, sing or sit in a room with lots of people, or a room with inadequate ventilation, you can still be exposed to the virus, even if you're wearing a mask. Fresh-flowing or filtered air dilutes the particles, and hence the spread. So you may ask, what is the risk of getting COVID if I'm masked and double vaccinated? There is no vaccine that gives you 100% protection against any disease. COVID vaccinations similarly do not stop you getting the illness, but they certainly reduce the severity and risk of you being in hospital from the illness. The data shows that if you are vaccinated, you are eight times less likely to get infected with SARS-CoV-2 compared to an unvaccinated person you are also 25 times less likely to die from this infection than the unvaccinated. So getting your vaccination and booster is the most important thing you can do to protect yourself. There's also mention that now that we have such a high rate of vaccination, why don't we just treat it just like the flu? The worry is that one in three people who get COVID end up with long COVID. And even if you're vaccinated, this can still happen. What can you do to reduce your risk of getting COVID? Simply good lifestyle measures will certainly help. Firstly, a good diet filled with fresh fruit and vegetables. You know that colorful plate that you're always told about? Yes, it is important. Drink plenty of water, avoid smoking and alcohol. Secondly, sleep. Sleep plays a big role in your immunity, so ensure that you have adequate sleep. Continue exercising. Even doing yoga or going for a walk would be enough. Vitamin D deficiency reduces your immunity, and we're particularly lucky here in New Zealand to have had a great summer with plenty of sunshine. But going into the winter months, our stores may be depleted. Also, people like me with darker skin take longer to absorb that vitamin D from the sun, so we need higher amounts. Also, if you have chronic illnesses, make sure your management is up to date. Getting other vaccinations, example your shingles, why does it matter? Because you can get a co-infection with one of that while you have COVID, which is not what you really want. Another key factor in reducing the risk of COVID is your environment. Getting vaccinated increases the quantity of aerosol particles that you need to be exposed to to increase your risk of getting SARS-CoV-2. If you are vaccinated and unmasked in a crowded area for a long period of time, you are exposed to a higher viral load and are more likely to get infected than someone who is also 
been in the same room for a shorter period and wore a well-fitted mask. Disease can also be less severe as you have a lower number of viral particles which can infect your cells, replicate further, giving you a milder infection. This highlights the fact that there are things that are within our control to help lower your risk of getting COVID. Another particularly useful prevention strategy, which as you may recall, I've been an advocate since the outbreak started, is the correct use of a mask. The government and CDC have changed their position on masks repeatedly over the course of this pandemic, which has caused quite a bit of confusion. But masks definitely play a role in the spread of diseases, and the benefits have been highlighted again and again. Wearing a face mask blocks the virus particles entering into the air around you when you breathe out, which helps keep the virus from spreading. And of course, masks are also a helpful barrier when you cough or sneeze. The effectiveness of a mask, that is how much protection it gives you, is based on two factors. Firstly, the ability of the material to capture infective particles. And secondly, the amount of air leaking out from around the mask. Most mask materials can be thought of as a tangled net of small fibers. Particles passing through the masks are stopped when they physically touch one of these fibers. N95s and KN95s and surgical masks are purpose-built to be effective at removing particles from the air. These fibers are usually made from melt-down plastics, often polypropylene, and the strands are tiny, less than four thousandths of an inch of a diameter. That's 10 micrometers. Or putting that into something more tangible, it's approximately one-third the width of a human hair. These fibers are very tightly packed together, so the gaps an infective particle needs to navigate through are very small, resulting in a high probability that the particles will end up touching and sticking to a fiber as they pass through a mask. These polypropylene materials also often have a static charge that can help attract and catch particles. Cloth masks are typically made of common woven materials such as cotton and polyester. The fibers are often large and less densely packed together, meaning particles can easily pass through the material. Adding more layers can help, but stacking layers can make it harder to breathe and will still typically not match that of a surgical mask or N95. That's why the CDC have announced in mid-January that loose-fitting cloth masks were not effective enough to protect you against Omicron. So, to give yourself the best shot against the variant, upgrade your cloth masks and instead choose a high-filtration mask that fits closely to your face. In my opinion, the most important best protective benefit you get from a mask, whichever mask you're wearing, is really to make sure you're creating a seal around your nose and mouth. Two years on, I still see people wearing masks incorrectly. The commonest mask worn is the disposable surgical mask. And so often I see patients and others wearing it inside out or upside down. The surgical mask usually has a colored side, which is the waterproof side, and belongs on the outside. The wide bit is the top part where you mold over your nose. The mask must cover your mouth and nose. A New York Times journalist formulated some novel names for incorrect mask wearing, which I love. The low rider, when it sits below your nose so that your nostrils are uncovered. The holster, when your mask is pulled down and resting on your neck. Or the flapjack, when it's hanging over your ear by one loop. One of my other concerns is that although coronavirus is often portrayed as green in pecs, it's about the only thing green about it. The waste and environmental burden from COVID is phenomenal. So although disposable masks are one of the best ways of protection, please consider the impact on the environment. Besides the economical burden at a cost of between $1 and $10 per mask. So can you reuse a mask, you may ask? 
The CDC and multiple experts have recommended that disposable masks such as an N95 may be reused, provided they are adequately stored in a paper bag for at least a few days. The coronavirus has an expected survival time of about 72 hours, so waiting for, say, five to seven days should be enough time for it to be activated. So my recommendation is that if you wear an N95 outside in the community, not in a medical situation now, but just in general when you're wearing it out, once you've come back, you take your mask off as per normal, ensuring that you have adequate hand sanitization, place the mask in those little sandwich brown paper bags, have a date on it, and clip it up somewhere to air. It can be left there for five days, and then you can reuse it. With regard to surgical masks, on the other hand, a recent study right here in New Zealand by Dr. Richard Everts, an infectious disease specialist, has confirmed that a high-quality surgical mask can be washed in warm water without detergent and air-dried for up to 10 times. It does lose some efficacy, but it's still between 80 and 90% effective. The best way is simply washing in warm tap water for 10 seconds while gently massaging them with remember, without detergent, and then drying them to kill the viruses and bacteria for reuse. Soaking masks in hot, boiled water for five minutes may also have a similar effect. Please do not use detergent or bleach or place them in the washing machine, as this study found that this reduced the effectiveness by 50%. It's thought also to reduce the static protection that the mask offers. Another point to consider about where you've worn your mask and for how long. Someone who wears a mask out in public every day, for example, may need to throw it out sooner than someone who wears a mask just to the grocery store and every once in a while. Whatever the circumstances, switch to a fresh mask if yours is dirty, thinning, soaked, damaged, or you're finding it hard to breathe through, or if you can no longer maintain a good seal with it. Another consideration in minimizing your risk at home and at work is thinking and being aware about shared air. Sanitizing the air compared to at the beginning of the pandemic when the focus was on disinfecting everything. Ventilation and air flow of your environment is really important with Omicron spread. So with the fab summer we've had, it's not hard to ventilate your house, opening the doors and windows, especially if you're getting guests. If you have a business, it may also be worth considering two added layers, a carbon dioxide monitor and an air purifier. Now, the carbon dioxide monitor simply measures the amount of carbon dioxide in the air, which is the gas we breathe out, giving an idea of how much exhaled breath is available in the room and potential viral particles in the room. The aim is to have the reading under 1,000, even better if it's under 800. If the reading is over 800, it simply tells you to open the doors and windows. Sometimes this is impossible if you have a windowless room, but opening the door as often as possible will certainly improve ventilation. An added layer is an air purifier with a HEPA filter. This purifies 99.97% of all small particles. And remember, if you have a CO2 monitor in the room, the reading will be unaffected by an air purifier as it doesn't reduce the CO2 levels. It merely filters out the bacteria and viral particles. Overall, we have been very lucky in our country. We've watched and learned from others. With our high vaccination rate, mask wearing, proactive ventilation methods. We cannot rely on the government to protect us, but each of us has to be responsible for ourselves and know how to reduce our risk in an Omicron world, which is now a reality. So far in this pandemic, we can't easily measure what we can't easily see. This differs from therapeutics, with which people can observe a tangible benefit. 
the success of prevention methods must be framed as a lack of worse outcome. That message cannot be lost, or it will be hijacked as evidence that the intervention was not needed, when in fact it is the evidence that has worked. In conclusion, it's not easy to hear the modeler's predictions without a twinge of anxiety and even more anxiety when you get the call or the text to say that you're positive. Remember, most infections will be manageable at home with common sense measures, but isolation is essential to reduce the spread. On a positive note, we have one of the highest double vaccination rates in the world, with almost 95% and our booster numbers are climbing. Our team of 5 million is almost mostly compliant and will do things to help themselves if we are concerned, like work from home and avoid public transport if there's a sense of heightened concern. We're also in summer. On top of all of this, we've started our outbreak later than everyone else. That gives us time to ramp up our booster program and and get the children between the age of 5 and 11 vaccinated. Now, getting back to what sparked my initial desire to discuss COVID vaccinations, its effect on injectables. Last year, there was a wee bit of panic over dermal filler reacting with the COVID-19 Moderna vaccine, which is not one of the vaccines being used in New Zealand currently. So what's all the fuss about, you may ask? In December 2020, it was reported that three patients out of the 15,184 who had had the Moderna vaccine reported some facial swelling. So that's just 0.02%. Why was the media all up in a tiz? It's because these people with swellings had also had dermal fillers previously. Data from the Moderna trial highlighted two cases of facial swelling and one case of lip swelling one to two days later after vaccination who had previously had dermal fillers in these areas. One had treatment within two weeks and one within six months and the other one was unreported. It doesn't, however, give us the total number of patients in the study that had actually had dermal fillers, but only those that had swelling. Bearing in mind the number of patients included in the study and the current popularity of dermal fillers, it's more than likely that a significant number of these patients would have had treatment within the last 12 months. What is also not known from the vaccine trials is the true number of participants who had previously had soft tissue filler injections. The total study participation population was not queried regarding the previous soft tissue filler use. In all three cases, the swelling resolved with some oral antihistamine or steroid tablets without any further issues. The consequence was that the media reported that people with fillers need to be cautious about the vaccination. This raised concern that the vaccine causes an interaction with filler, which in fact is not true. For me, this was simply bad science. What's also not reported is that it isn't a new phenomenon at all. We've known for years that when the body fights any infection, fillers can also feel swollen and tender. Illnesses like the flu, sinusitis, urine infections and dental infections are all triggers that cause swelling of fillers. That's why our pre-care instructions are to avoid filler treatments if you had any infection. Else the illness resolves, so does the swelling. So it's just temporary and will go away without any special treatment at all. It's a medical fact that when your body mounts a response to infection or vaccination, you potentially can swell. When your body is on high alert to fight off the infection, systemic inflammation occurs. This means your immune system kicks into gear to fight this off and is flooded with white cells, which fight infection. This immune response is what causes swelling and the muscle and joint aches you may experience when you have the flu. Vaccination aims to mimic an infection with a potential bug that we are trying to protect your body from. The body is tricked into thinking it has the infection and creates an immune response to this perceived infection. It therefore mounts a response to protect you, creating antibodies. You can feel a bit fluey or achy after certain vaccinations. 
We also know that when the body mounts this response, fillers too can feel swollen and tender. This is by no means a new phenomenon at all with the COVID vaccine, but rather a fact that we've known for years that may occur with any vaccine. So, it's very important to understand that this isn't really a filler problem per se, but rather a consequence of the body reacting to the vaccine and not the vaccine infecting your filler. A recent global survey has shown that currently available COVID-19 vaccines do not have any greater risk of a soft tissue reaction than any other common triggers. While this reaction is a possibility, it is believed to be a rare occurrence. If you've had hyaluronic acid fillers, this shouldn't deter you from getting the vaccine or deter someone who's had the vaccine from getting fillers in the future. We in the medical aesthetics community are well aware of this risk and prepared for the potential for this type of reaction after any infection or vaccination. A recent survey by my colleague and well-known UK-based cosmetic doctor, Dr. Tim Pierce, amongst cosmetic injectors who were also frontline workers and were among the first in the world to be immunized with the COVID-19 vaccine, was really interesting. Now, as you're aware, most cosmetic injectors, most certainly almost all have had dermal fillers, and the study revealed that about 4% had swelling and most resolved spontaneously. This is relatively low. There are some areas that are slightly more susceptible to swelling following vaccination. These include the tear-toff area, the mala or perioral areas, but this may also just represent greater frequency in which these areas are treated. However, patients that have had lip filler or tear-toff filler in the last 6 to 12 months should be considered at a slightly higher risk. Other risks include delayed inflammatory reactions and autoimmune diseases like rheumatoid arthritis. Another recent survey based on and published in 2021 in the Journal of Drugs and Dermatology with 106 participants from 18 different countries showed that the COVID-19 vaccine do not pose any greater risk of soft tissue reaction than any of the other triggers. So how do we treat these swellings or delayed inflammatory reactions, or as they are called, you may ask? Most often, these reactions resolve completely spontaneously and are self-limiting and subside without any treatment. So how do you minimize your risk? From studies on other vaccinations, it is known that the first three weeks after vaccination is pivotal in developing antibodies, and this is when the immune system is most stimulated. Data from the Israel in a population of 500,000 has provided further evidence. Following the Pfizer vaccine, immunity within the first two weeks of administration was almost at zero, but then rose to about 90% at three weeks, and then did not rise any further. Although current evidence is limited, but based on the ACE group guidelines, it is recommended that soft tissue fillers should not be done within two weeks of your planned vaccination date or within three weeks after having received it. There is currently no evidence that the COVID vaccination has any effect on other cosmetic procedures. So, in summary, how do you minimize your risk now that we are moving into living in a COVID world? Firstly, get immunized and your booster. Do not delay your booster for the sake of cosmetic injectables. Secondly, wear a well-fitted mask, either surgical, KN95, or an N95. Thirdly, ensure that your rooms and your environment is well ventilated. Getting a CO2 monitor to help monitor what the ventilation is like, which will encourage you to open your doors if it's high, and or an air purifier which will help reduce the uh, circulation of bacteria and viruses by 99.97%. Yes, Omicron is here. And I too am scared. As a GP, as a wife of a fellow GP, 
as a daughter of an almost 84-year-old vulnerable mum, as a mother, and as a business owner. But with increasing age, I've learned to control the things I can, do the best I can, learn to live with ambiguity. It's too exhausting worrying about the stuff that I have no control over. And it's definitely an unknown road ahead, but I've come to accept that life, as I know it, will stop for a while. That's okay. At some stage, I will probably need to be in isolation for a while. That too is okay. At some stage, my work as a doctor will be even more demanding for a while. But that will also be okay. At some stage too, this all will pass. And I will look back and say, masks and ISO were so 2022. That's it for today. If you have any questions, direct message me on Medicine in the Mirror on social media or email me on medicineinthemirror at gmail.com and I'll be happy to answer your questions. That's it for now, guys. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Thanks for listening. Please hit subscribe on iTunes or follow on Spotify so you don't miss the next episode. I'd really appreciate it if you could leave a review and ratings on iTunes. Follow Medicine in the Mirror on Insta and Facebook for behind-the-scenes updates. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, go live your best reflection. Thank you.